0: In Boulder, Colorado, earlier this year, another billboard went up. I don't know if any of you read that in the news. And there's been billboards going up for a couple of years now. But this particular billboard this year said, God is an imaginary friend. Choose reality. It will be better for all of us. Think about that again. Let me read it again and think about it. God is an imaginary friend. Choose reality. It will be better for all of us. And in one billboard, they are proclaiming that there is no God and that we're better because there is no God. The challenge they have is Easter. The challenge they have is there's an empty tomb that no one can account for. The challenge they have is we have a Christ who died on the cross, paid for our sins, and is no longer dead. God is not an imaginary friend. He is the God that created the universe. He is the God that secured our salvation, and He is the God that this morning we worship has risen and alive. I choose reality, and we're better because of it, and we're better because of it. This morning, we want to come and finish off the book of Mark. We've been studying through the book of Mark for a while now, and we come to the resurrection this morning as we come to Easter, and what a perfect way to end the book and and I start with actually a, a, a creed from the early Christian church that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 because it gives us the framework of what we're talking about this morning and what we talked about last week on Palm Sunday as we talked about Good Friday. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Paul is writing, and this is, this is a creed of the early church of what they believed. What is the gospel? For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. And then three things. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And last week we focused on what it meant that He died for our sins. And that He was a, a substitution for us. He was a sacrifice for us. He's our Savior. That the whole concept of what it meant for God to hang on that tree, for Jesus to hang on that cross and bear our sins along with the punishment for our sins as the area turned dark. And that is why we can have salvation. It was driven home to me this week when Susie and I were talking. And she was talking about that one of our children um, needed to be disciplined for something that they had done. And she was recounting a story that had happened earlier. And she was about to go in and discipline that particular child. And one of the other children says, Mommy, Can can I take the spanking for Him? Because we've been talking about Easter. We've been talking about what Christ did on the cross. And what a a perfect picture from the mouth of a child of what Christ did for us as He said, Dad, let me step in and take the penalty for that. What drove home to us as Susie and I were talking, and I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could discipline one of my children... For one of the other ones. But God loved us so much, and He was so intent on securing our salvation that He poured out the judgment for sin on Jesus Christ as He hung there. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story in, in the Creed in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not the end of the story. Praise God. Because if it was the end, where would we be left? Did they kill God? Is there God? Is death actually more powerful than God? Is the Messiah dead? What, where does that leave us? What hope do we have? If Jesus can't even conquer death, then what do, hope do I have after death? I'm toast. I'm gone. Because there is no hope if that's where the story ends. And that's why I love Easter. Because we come to Easter to finish the story. The story doesn't end with Jesus on the cross. The story doesn't end with him in the tomb. So this morning, will you turn with me to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Mark chapter 15, we'll actually go back to verse 40 and start there. And we're going to continue through the Creed. The second point was that he was buried. And the third was that He was raised on the third day. So point number one, the setup. Jesus was buried, but hope is not lost. Jesus was buried, but hope is not lost. Read with me at verse 40. If you don't have a Bible with you in the the chair right before you, there should be Bibles that you can pull out and turn to Mark. It's in the New Testament about three-quarters of the way through. Mark chapter 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, and the scene here is still the scene of the crucifixion, but Mark is transitioning to what happens after it, and he's introducing these characters as, as the characters that are going to tie the next two scenes together. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So the scene at the cross, the disciples have mostly fled. You have John still there. Jesus is alone, but the women that have been ministering and following him, they're off where where they were supposed to be in Jewish culture. They they had each had a place where they could stand. They're watching this. And what Mark is introducing here, as as we're going to see as we go through the next few verses, he is introducing proof that Jesus was who he said he was, and proof that Jesus rose again from the dead. And he's doing it through eyewitnesses, and so he introduces names. He doesn't usually say names, but the idea is this. If I tell you, hey, last week I, I went to a Dodger game, you have no proof if that's just my word, right? But if I can say, and Joshua was there with me, and Nolan was there with me, and Kristen was there with me, then what do you do if you doubt me? I'm going to go talk to those people. And and these ladies are still alive when the people are getting Mark and reading Mark. And so, so the, the author here is establishing credibility. He's establishing that this actually happened. Jesus is not an imaginary friend. This actually happened. We come to verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We have to understand what's going on here. This is Friday Friday evening. Not quite sundown, because at sundown, the Sabbath starts. And their Sabbath went from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to do any work. You were not allowed to touch a dead body. And so all of the things that needed to be done for Jesus and burial and anointing Him had to be done before sundown. And so that's Mark is pointing this out. He's writing to an audience that wouldn't always understand that um, in Rome. And so he points out that this is Friday night and they don't have much time. They have maybe an hour or two. And then he brings up a character that all four Gospels talk about. Someone that we can learn something from in this passage. Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph was a respected, influential man. He was highly honored. He sat on the Sanhedrin. He sat on the Council of Seventy that was part of the court that convicted Jesus. But we know from the Gospels that he did not agree with the decision. He did not go along with the decision. Luke describes him as a good and upright man. John describes him as a disciple of Christ, but that he was a secret disciple because he was fearful of the Jews and what would happen. And so what we see here is this man who's been a disciple of Christ. He's looking for the kingdom of God, but he's been doing it secretly because he's afraid. He's afraid he might lose position in the council. He's afraid that he might suffer the same fate as Jesus. And now, now the events that seem so dark, the events that seem so lost are what finally motivate him, what finally stir his heart to step up and to take courage. And that's how Mark describes it there in verse 43. took courage and went to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. See, it would have taken courage to identify with this man that they just crucified. A man that was accused of being a rebel, of insurrection. To go and say, I'd like his body means that you're identifying with him. And the, the leaders, Pilate, is actually who you would have had to go, have gone to. Pilate could have said, oh, you do, do you? Well, that means you're one of them. You're next. That's easily how this could have gone. But Joseph took courage because he saw what needed to be done and he wanted to honor our Lord and Savior. See, the Romans, if no one comes and buries them, they let them hang there for a few days until the birds and other scavengers have picked off a lot of the flesh and then they just take the body and put it in a mass grave. That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's plan. His plan was an empty tomb. And so Joseph took courage and asked for the body. We see the the passage go on in verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Interesting sequence here where Mark, who usually goes so fast, The the camera's moving and it's jumping and all of a sudden it pauses. And the scene that it pauses on is a certification of of Jesus' death. Pilate's like, what? He's dead already? See, it often took two or three days for someone that was hanging on a cross to die. Because remember, they liked to prolong the suffering. To make them pay. And Pilate's like, he can't be dead already. And he calls the centurion because the centurion's an expert witness. The centurion has presided over crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. And he's an expert in death. And he calls him in. He says, is Jesus really dead? The centurion says, yeah, he's dead. We pierced his side. Blood and water came out. He's dead. And Mark here is establishing truth. He's establishing truth and he's already countering some of the arguments. One of the arguments against the death and resurrection of Jesus is the swoon theory that Jesus just, he, he passed out on the cross. He didn't really die and they took him down and they put him in the grave and he, and, and he woke up a day letter and, and he rolled the stone away by himself, which is in itself just hilarious. And, and, And that's the swoon theory. And Mark here is saying that cannot be. The experts testified. The eyewitnesses testified. This man was dead. This is not some accident. This is a miracle from God Almighty. He's not mostly dead. For those of you Princess Bride fans. He's completely dead. And we may think, well, okay, why, Pastor Ron, are you going there? This is Easter. Remember, you said we are celebrating His resurrection. But there's two reasons why the burial is important. The first is that the fact that He is dead proves that He paid the penalty for our sin. It proves that it is complete, that it is done, that it is finished. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. If Jesus didn't die the wages aren't paid, and you and I are still on the hook. That's why Mark is making such a point of he was buried, and he to be buried, he was dead. And just by way of application, as, as we go through our walk with God, so many times Satan will tell us that the price is not paid for what we've done. Satan would love nothing more than to convince you that your sins are not paid for. And keep the guilt right at the front of your face. Because if he can keep you feeling guilty, if he can keep you thinking you have to pay for your own sins, then he stops you from doing anything for God Almighty. The burial is important. Because it shows that sin was completely paid for. It would be like if you got a, a cell phone bill and maybe you forgot to put texting on your plan and you had a couple thousand texts so you have a $500 bill. And, and and you have this bill and and I come in and I pay the bill for you. Okay, You know that. I pay the bill for you. But every day when you pick up your phone and receive another text, you're like, oh no, that was $500. I still owe that. And so every day you go into the cell phone company and you try to pay your bill again. What are they going to do? Well, they'll probably keep taking your money, actually. (laughs) But at some point, they're going to say, this was paid for. Why are you wasting your time and energy paying for this over and over and over again? They will laugh at you because it's nuts. But yet, as we try to pay for our own sins, and as we stay wallowing in the guilt that can happen because of what we've done, We're trying to pay the bill over and over and over again. And this morning, the burial and the resurrection proclaims that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He has paid your bill in full. And nothing can change that. Nothing we can do can pay the bill anyway. And our response can only be submission submission to God and confession to God second reason why the burial is so important is it's setting up the resurrection. It's emphasizing the the power of the resurrection. And so we see in verse 46, and Joseph bought a linen shroud. Verse 45, let's jump back, sorry. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph was the only one asking. No disciples, no family. Jesus was alone. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so Joseph takes probably his own family tomb and it was cut out of stone and you go inside and there's these little niches that you put the bodies in. And this tomb had not been used. And he he takes Jesus down off the cross and we know from one of the other Gospels Nicodemus is there with him. And they take Jesus down off the cross and they wash the body and they wrap him in the linens and they anoint him the best that they could before the Sabbath and they lay him in the tomb. And then we have a stone this morning. They took the stone, which was somewhere around this size but much heavier than this one, and they, it's on a slope and they roll it in front of the entrance to the tomb to ensure that no critters get in, that no vandals get in. It is very difficult to move once it is moved up. There are a couple kids real close to the front here. A couple volunteers, kids. Anyone here? If, if, come on up. I need some help. Couple more. My son's brave enough to volunteer and you guys are brave enough to volunteer. Can you guys just help me roll this tomb, this stone? There we go. Let's just roll it right over there in front of that door. Okay, you ready? Push real hard. Come on up. Don't want to crush you. And it falls into place with a thud. And it blocks the way that says Jesus is buried. And it sets up what's going to happen on Sunday. Because this isn't the end of the story. Do you think God is bigger than the stone? Absolutely. Do you think God can move this if He needs to? Even though it took six of us to put it into place? (laughs) Absolutely He can. I have something for you guys. Let me just give you a stone. It's a little stone. But I want you to hold this the rest of the morning and remember what Jesus did. And I didn't untie the inner one. But this is a reminder that man put a stone in front of the tomb, but God took the stone away and God did a miracle. Here, take one. Take one. So you'll be listening and see what happens with this stone. Thanks. You guys can sit down. We can learn a lesson from Joseph. Because Joseph was living in fear, but when confronted with what Jesus did, stepped up in courage. He took a stand. And Mark here is contrasting him with both the women of what's going to happen and with Peter and his denial. And Joseph finally took a stand and said, I am a disciple. I will protect Jesus' honor. I will take care of Him. It's a reminder to me that every crisis we face every heartache every devastation every time we don't think we can go on and our heart is crushed as joseph was as he saw his lord crucified on the cross that becomes an opportunity to stand and say the story's not done the story's not done my lord and savior is not finished i will serve him I challenge you to continue to stand. I've loved seeing the different verses that you're posting on Facebook and different things you're doing to proclaim that you're a Christian. Keep keep that up. Let's be Joseph. The second half, the next part of the story, the event. Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. He is triumphant and alive. Jesus was raised. He is triumphant and alive. And this is where we come to worship in awe, in fear, in trembling, as we see the power of our Lord and Savior expressed in a way that has never happened before. Others have been raised, but God is raising Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so it's after after Saturday evening, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices. And so we see the same ladies, and he's using the names again because you can go ask them and see if it's true. They brought spices so they might go and anoint him. When they anointed them, they didn't practice embalming in Jewish circles, but they would take perfumes and they would pour over the body to cover the the, the smell of the body as it decayed. And so they were going to do that And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, so right at the crack of dawn, they went to the tomb. Sunday morning. Anyone this morning up at the crack of dawn? A few of you. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? As they're going, they realize we don't have a way to do this. That stone, especially when it's down on the slant, that took six of us to put into place, a couple of ladies are not going to be able to get it out. But they went. And they obeyed. Not even knowing how God would provide, they did what God called them to do. There is a huge lesson for us there. So many times we are so caught up in the practical of how will this be done that we forget that that's the wrong question. The question that we ask in our Christian lives is what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? And then let Him take care of the how it will be done. That's one of the messages of the resurrection. It's one of the messages of of these women that are coming to the tomb is God took care of the difficult parts. And they obeyed. They obeyed. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And so God, early that morning, had given life to Jesus and had rolled back the stone. Not so Jesus could get out, but so we could get in. So we could see the empty tomb. So we could see the power of God on display. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They recognized him right away as an angel. And they're alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so Mary and Mary and Salome, they come to the tomb and they go inside and they hear the message and their heads are spinning. They came thinking that they were coming to anoint a dead body. They came as a funeral dirge. They came in, in sorrow and in grief. And the stone is rolled away and their first thought is probably, what has someone done to the body of our Savior? And they go inside and there's the angel. And he says, he is not here. He is risen. Some over the years have said, well, maybe they got the wrong tomb. Maybe they made a mistake. It's the mistake theory. Why do you think Mark before that in verse 47 say that they saw where he was laid? He's establishing actually a legal defense saying the witnesses knew the tomb But the second part of that is, if they got it wrong, then God got it wrong and He sent the angel to the wrong tomb. Maybe every tomb had an angel that morning. No, the answer is Jesus was risen. And the women here don't know how to respond. You can't blame them. But they don't know how to respond. If you look at some of the the words in verse 5, and they were alarmed. Awestruck, dumbfounded. I don't even know how you process that information quickly. How do you process that someone you followed and that you cared about, that you watched brutally killed, is now alive. And their heads are swimming. But the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. The angel first seeks to comfort, as it seems like angels always have to do when we're confronted with the power of God. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. And then he gives an instruction go and tell. Go and tell. That's his word. That's his instruction to them. Go tell the disciples. This is great news. This is amazing news. Go tell everyone you can. Go tell the disciples. Verse 7, notice that he says, Tell his disciples and Peter. And we see just a subtle sense of the love and forgiveness of God. Remember when we last saw Peter? He's crushed because he just denied his Lord. And he thinks the world is crashing down around him. And the message from God is, "Go tell his disciples, but make sure you tell Peter. Make sure you tell Peter I'm going to see him again. Make sure you tell Peter, I still love him." And it's, and we're going to be together again. The empty tomb. What difference does it really make? This morning as we worship, it makes every bit of difference. It is everything. See, some of the things that the empty tomb represent, it says that the God that we serve is alive. The God we serve is alive. He is with us. No resurrection, no presence. We think through, through history, the pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contained the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. Westminster Abbey in London is renowned because it rests the bodies of English nobles and notables. Muhammad's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. Arlington Cemetery in Washington DC is revered for it is the honored resting place of many outstanding Americans. The garden tomb of Jesus? It's famous because it was empty. He is alive and He is with us. We serve a risen Savior. No one else can claim that. What difference does the empty tomb make? It says God is alive. It says He conquered death. He conquered death. And we we throw that word around a lot, but, but that's important for our hope of eternity. Because if He can't conquer death Himself then there's no way that He can help us conquer death. There's no way that we have any hope after life on this earth. But because of the empty tomb, because He conquered death, because death could not hold Him, we have hope that if we believe in Him, we will spend eternity living with Him. Life does not end here on earth. And that gives us perspective to deal with all kinds of trouble here. It gives us perspective to deal with the 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 complexities and the the distress of a fallen world that we live in to know that God conquered that. And He's going to take us into eternity with Him. More than conquering death, it means He conquered sin and He conquered Satan. We talked about that. The payment is paid in full. It means that ultimate power was displayed. Nothing is more powerful than God. He is alive and ruling. He is sovereign. And I get excited about that because that means any situation I'm in here that I don't understand, I don't have to worry about it because God has proven He can handle anything, including death. And I rest in His power and I trust Him. If there's not an empty tomb, I can't trust Him. But the empty tomb says He is able. He is able. Proves that Jesus Christ is who he claimed he would be. Read with me verse 8. Because this is is probably where the book of Mark ends. We'll talk about that more next week. Next week we're going to start at 9.15 and do a reading service through Mark, a reading and worship service. invite you to come. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What? That can't be how it ends. Where's the happy ending? And they lived happily ever after. But Mark here he ends it abruptly and he ends it with a question actually. And he's saying, okay, their first reaction was such shock and such fear that they weren't able to tell anyone. They weren't able to do anything about it. Now we know... From the other gospels and, and the readers would have known that they were able to get past that and they were able to come into to having courage and they did go and tell the disciples eventually but Mark here is setting up a dilemma because the third point is a response is required a response is required what will you do? what will you do? And this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, that is the question that Mark leaves us with. What will you do with the empty tomb? What will you do with the the proven fact of a resurrected Messiah? The women broke down. And they, they succumbed to fear at first. And then God strengthened them and appeared. And they went and proclaimed. But what do we do with an empty tomb? Will we go tell? Will we honor the the Word of the Lord when He says, go and tell? Will we proudly proclaim that we serve a risen Savior? Will we come to Easter with joy knowing that it represents that our Lord and Savior conquered all? Will we go this week and live our lives like we serve a Savior that conquered all? Where there's, there's... There's hope that permeates everything we do. Or will our lives be the same when we leave? Will we leave the empty tomb and go back to struggling with everyday life? Or do we believe that God rose from the dead and lives in the hearts of those who will believe and is still sovereign, and is still able to handle anything we face. Because then we can come to our week, and we can say, I don't care what happens. He hasn't promised to make life perfect. He's promised to take care of life that isn't perfect. And so I can go to Him, and I can worship Him. And in fact, when He's taking care of life that isn't perfect, that gives me something to talk about to those that need a Savior. That's what He calls us to do to worship, to tell, to rejoice.